Hi, Sound Effect listeners. During the course of this conversation, you will hear a couple of words you might find objectionable. If you would prefer not to be surprised by them while listening, you can read the transcript on our website, AppalachianMagazine.org, where you can see the words and the context in which they were used. We seem to be living in times of heightened need for drama, both on social media and in mainstream politics and in the mainstream media. Abuse of power happens on social media too, even when it's being done by nice people like us. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. John Ronson is an award-winning author, documentary maker, and screenwriter. He's the author of nine books, including the best-selling The Psychopath Test, The Men Who Stare at Goats, Them, Adventures with Extremists, and Frank, the true story that inspired the movie. He's a regular contributor to the public radio show This American Life and has written for the British national daily newspaper The Guardian, as well as for GQ and The New York Times. His TED Talk, When Online Shaming Spirals Out of Control, has been viewed nearly 1.5 million times. His latest book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, explores the phenomenon of public shaming, including people who have been shamed, those who have done the shaming, including Ronson himself, and ultimately the journey he took from viewing shaming as a freeing, democratizing process to viewing it as a process that reduces our society to one that is intolerant and unaccepting of the complexities of what it means to be human. John Ronson, welcome to Appalachian and welcome to Sound Effects. Hi, thank you, Megan. Very nice to be here. I should point out, by the way, that 1.5 million TED Talk views is actually quite bad. It's quite disappointing. Um, my other TED Talk on um, um, the psychopath test has like 7 million views or something. And it saddens me because I think, I tell you what, can I tell you what it makes me think? It makes me think that people love to, to demonise other people. So they want to see talks about psychopaths because we love nothing more than to declare other people insane. Whereas talks about humanising other people and de-demonising people are just less popular. You don't think people are just afraid they're psychopaths? Well, there's some of that. So many times with the psychopath test, there's a paragraph in the psychopath test, which I didn't think was like a standout paragraph at all, where I quote somebody as saying that if you're reading this book and you're worried that you may be a psychopath, that means you're not one because psychopaths never worry about being psychopaths. Like, it's like great feeling to be a psychopath. Uh, and so many people said, to me, oh my God, I was so nervous. Like, I, was, I was reading a book thinking I might be a psychopath and I was so nervous and I was so pleased when I got to that bit that said that I'm not one. If I, I was thinking, God, there's all these like hundreds of thousands of people out there like on the scantest evidence. So I think I'm a psychopath. It's like, I don't think, I've never thought I'm a psychopath. That's why I'm, but then again, I have an anxiety disorder and it's impossible to be a psychopath and have an anxiety disorder. I think you're probably just more informed than the rest of us who worry whenever we do something wrong that that means we're psychopaths. I guess so. <laughs> I just pictured when you said that um, an anxious psychopath would be terrible thing to be because, you know, you have like an anxiety spurt and it manifests itself and you're just kind of instinctively murdering some <laughs> terrible combination that would be. Anyway. Well, this is a different, kind of going in a slightly different direction, but if I could, um, uh-huh. one of the things I wanted to mention is there are some who might listen to this who haven't read the book, so you've been publicly shamed. And so you spent three years delving into the repercussions of people who dared really to be bold, whether they were making a joke or saying something uninformed and not very well thought out on social media, before you published the book in 2015. And 
I don't know, I was thinking when I was reading it that it could just be me, but I feel like this is even more commonplace now than it was. Do you think that's true? Yes, I think it's true. I think it's got worse um, since my book came out. Uh, it's funny, the, the New York Times, the, the way that my book sort of made it into the world first was that the New York Times ran an excerpt about this woman, Justine Sacco, um, she was about to get on a plane to Cape Town and she tweeted, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And then while she was asleep on the plane, Twitter dismantled her life and it was never the same again. So that was the story that the New York Times ran for my book. And and the story was very kind of passionately like we we were wrong to do what we did to Justine Sacco for many reasons. Not least the reason that she was asleep on a plane and completely oblivious to her destruction and had no opportunity to explain her joke and and her joke was actually a, an attempt at a liberal joke and anyway so when when it came out people were writing editorials like oh my god this story in the New York Times is gonna you know it's gonna stop shaming it's like it's gonna like put a halt to our culture of shaming. And really, it didn't. I mean, things just got worse and worse and worse. More and more bloodthirsty. Sometimes, you know, more deserved than others. Um, sometimes horrendously undeserved. The reason why I'm hesitating is that there's one going on at the moment. It started like about two days ago where it was kind of deserved. And because it's deserved, because the person did a reprehensible thing, the the ferocity of the violence is worse than I think I've ever seen. It's a guy called Nico Hines, who is a, he's a British journalist uh, who was at the Olympics and he wrote an article for the Daily Beast, which I never read. So I'm, it's kind of, you know, position of ignorance here, but um, it apparently was outing. He was trying to write a sort of funny article about Grindr in Rio, but he ended up outing gay athletes, including gay athletes who come from countries where when outed, they can be murdered. So it was a terrible thing that he did, even if he wasn't consciously like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, even so it was a terrible thing. What's really interesting is, you know, because there's little ambiguity to how bad his thing was, the, the, yeah, the shaming is is extraordinary. I've never seen such a bloodthirsty shaming. Uh, in fact, well, I'd Google, I don't know if we've got reception down here. Yeah, I've got some reception. I had a look the other day. It's been going on for about three days. And the last time it was like, slit your wrists. I was like the first one that I saw. Um, and what that makes you think, and of course, because I wrote the book on public shaming, every time something like this happens, I get like a million people. People who don't like the book are like, oh, <laughs> are you looking forward to hearing John Ronson? cape up for Nico Hines, like because I write a book that's against disproportionate public shaming, that also must mean that I am in, in favour of outing gay athletes. Anyway, I'm just seeing if... Uh, do, 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 do. When are you going to fire that piece of human garbage, Nico Hines, for his absurdly inappropriate life-threatening article? Blah, 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 blah. So really, really violent language. And, and what that makes me feel is that you know, shamings are always about more than the transgressions. Surely we can discuss even the Nico Hines shaming in kind of nuanced terms without that meaning that we are in favour of what he did. Right. Shamings yeah. are always about more than just the transgressions. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, that actually brings me to a question that I was going to ask you a little later on. But, you know, that 
you met several individuals who lost their jobs mm-hmm. as a result of the public response them being culturally insensitive on social media. Yeah, and things way less bad sure. than what Nico Hines did. I mean, I, I was interested in writing about people who were disproportionately punished I'm kind of misinterpreted. I wanted the book to be about the disproportionate punishment of people who really hadn't done very much wrong at all. So do you think employers have a role in this to step in and say, okay, so maybe this doesn't line up with what we believe as a, you know, as as an entity, as a corporate entity or whatever our organization is, but this is a human being. And as a human being, we're going to say that, you know, we're going to work with them. Maybe they need, you know, who knows, maybe they need sensitivity training. I don't know. Or maybe it's just, we're going to just agree that they're human and that they've done all these other great things. And so therefore, as their employer, do you think that could stop some of this? When that happens, I'm delighted because there's an obligation to stand up to abuse of power. And abuse of power happens on social media too, even when it's been done by nice people like us. Um, And what I noticed was that, you know, I've written about abuse of power lots of times in my career. And the only time I've ever been criticised for it was when the power being abused was happening on social media. Mm. And I think it's incredibly important for for companies to to stand up and defend where appropriate. I mean, this Nico Hines thing that's that's unfolding right now, that was a really stupid thing that should have not passed through all the levels and ended up on the Daily Beast site. Mm-hmm. But when it's somebody who just tells a joke that comes out badly, a liberal joke that comes out badly, and then they're just immediately fired out of fear. I mean, when Justin Sacker was fired for that joke, what was going on there was fear and corporate damage limitation. Yeah, they had tweeted before she even got off the plane. Yeah, you know, they basically implied that they were going to fire her before she got off the plane and then fired her as soon as she got off the plane. And and in fact, she said, to, I, I didn't use this in the book, but she said to me, like, they made things worse because they tweeted, employee in question currently unreachable on an international flight. And that turned the rage into excitement. It's like, oh, my God, she, she's on a plane. And she doesn't even know this is happening. And that was hilarious to people. So they, they made it worse and then fired her. Yeah. Her company was IAC, the... Um, media company that run OkCupid okay and possibly the Daily Beast, but I could be wrong about that. Wow, this could be IAC's second major shaming. <laughs> it's run by Barry Diller. Chelsea Clinton's on the board of directors. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to, like, dig into a powerful corporation <laughs> too far till you find Chelsea Clinton. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think ultimately power is what the shamer is seeking? <laughs> There's, it's quite often a kind of misplaced sense of empathy. It's, I mean, you know, the desire to be empathetic is what leads people quite often to do these incredibly unempathetic things. So compassion and empathy quite often is propelling people to do these uncompassionate acts. Um, it's partly because, I, I, I talked about this just now actually at the convocation speech. I'd never written, I, I wrote a new speech for the convocation thing because I thought to myself, my God, it's going to be like three and a half thousand students there. I could either inspire them or accidentally disincentivize them. And I am known, I have, I have disincentivized young people in the past. So I didn't want to do that. So I wrote a whole new speech and I was really thinking about it. And I thought, yeah, it's like we had created a, this kind of utopian world where 
we were no longer misogynist, we weren't racist, we were compassionate to people with mental health issues. This was a great world that we had created, but we kind of just fell in love with it so much. It kind of turned us. I guess it's the old utopia dystopia thing. It's like we had, we fell in love with our awesomeness. You know, we had awesomely created this compassionate, de-shaming, non-racist, non-misogynistic, non-homophobic world. And we were so in love with it. When somebody got in the way, our response was furious. You know, I, I understand that impulse. Like... I was part of that. Like I, I loved, you know, I was, I was an early adopter of Twitter and I loved this happening. I loved seeing it happening. I was like, oh my God, you know, this is incredible. I remember a friend of mine, Graham Linehan, a comedy writer said, like the internet is black magic, but Twitter is white magic. Mm. It felt like we were creating a brave new world. And then when we realised that we could do something about bad people, we did it with, with a fury. And it started off being corporations. I remember big early shaming was LA Fitness, the gym company. There was this heavily pregnant woman who couldn't afford the fees and LA Fitness refused to cancel her membership. And so Twitter got them to change their mind. We shamed them into changing their mind. And we were like, whoa, this this is amazing. And then that quickly turned into ruining private individuals who had done almost nothing wrong. Yeah, so um, you think the role of the internet troll has value? Um, I, I didn't want to write a book about trolls because trolls enjoy chaos. Personally, I was much more interested in writing about people who saw themselves as good people. Trolls know they're dicks, by and large, and they enjoy it. They enjoy being dicks. Whereas the people who destroyed Justin Sacco, there was a few trolls among them, a few kind of lovers of you know, chaos. But most of the people who destroyed Justine were good people, nice people, who then, by the way, reacted furiously when I wrote a piece defending Justine Sacco. Well, and their 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 rage was, was violent rage. I mean, violent rage against her, you know, rape her, murder her. Does uh, that sound like good people? The good people were the ones who were tweeting in the light of Justine Sacco's uh, horrendous insensitive tweet, I am donating to aid to Africa. Right. <laughs> they were the good people. And then, that could, and, then, and then, so there was a lot of compassionate people. Then came trolls. Um, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. That was one tweet. And then there were, yeah, the rape, the rape and killer. Uh, and then there were scores of hipsters. <laughs> hipsters loved it. Funnily enough, it's the hipsters who are like my least favourite ingredient in all of this. Why yeah. is that? I don't know. There's something especially annoying about the emptiness of it. <laughs> yeah, it's the emptiness. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me in your book was um, how many times you'd meet someone who seemed on the surface to have done something really abhorrent, you know, and they were exposed, you went and you met them. And once you started talking to them, There were several times in your book where you said, I actually really liked this person. Yeah, you tend to like people when you meet them. I mean, you tend, unless they're monsters, and, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, so I have met a few monsters. Most people aren't monsters. As somebody says to me in the book, you know, when you look under the hood, most of us aren't Voldemort. Most of us are just kind of messed up. We're good and we're bad. I'm good and bad. I I do good work and I make mistakes. You know, I'm, I'm a... 
I'm a good father, and then sometimes I do something stupid, and you know that's how most of us are, and and I think that's a much healthier way to perceive our fellow human beings is like a, a mess. But Twitter promotes um, conflict. Twitter promotes you know drama, a stage for constant artificial high dramas, and I think it's going beyond Twitter now. I think it's what explains this you know messed up election cycle. It's like the, the atmosphere that starts on social media has now infiltrated mainstream politics. It infiltrates college campuses. It's the mainstream media. It's, it, you know, everything is now more heightened because of Twitter. I mean, I hope that's not a too overblown thing to say, but I think it is. Well, I think that's interesting that you're talking about, you know, Twitter in particular, because I, I do think a lot of us, and I don't know, maybe it's just some, you know, <clears throat> middle-aged, but I feel like there's this tendency for my generation to blame a lot of the collateral damage of public shaming on technology. Hmm. Um, and I, I think technology does allow us to take this more one-dimensional approach, for sure, that, you know, than when we're having, like you said, this face-to-face conversations and you get to know someone and really understand that they're human and there is a humanity that we have in common. Hmm. But um, I think at least one person that you interviewed for your book points out that, you know, this is not, this shaming phenomenon is not new. The shaming phenomenon is not new, but I think it's elements of it are new because of technology. So, okay, so there's a couple of things I should say about. Firstly, I believe that, you know, I spent some time up in the Massachusetts archives trying to work out why public shaming had died out in the 18. 40s, 1850s. And and I didn't find a single document. I mean, they may exist, but I didn't find a single document that said, we have to stop public shaming because it's ineffectual. A shamed person can just lose themselves in the crowd. Um, you know, now that we live in cities and not villages, which I think is like a common perception about why public shaming died out. But what I did find was a lot of documents that were like, we have to stop public shaming because it's barbaric. It's turning the crowd crazy. It's disproportionate. And I found lots of documents that said that. So that seems to be why public shaming was, you know, phased out in the mm-hmm. 1850s. Um, I think technology, to a large extent, is responsible, um, mainly because Twitter promotes, Twitter in particular, I think, promotes a kind of echo chamber Um, where we surround ourselves with people who feel the same way that we do and we kind of approve each other. Right. And, and you know, I think you notice that on a daily basis. Like like when you look at a Twitter feed, so when somebody says something and then you look at the replies, they tend to all agree with each other. Um, It's like living in a gated community. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Like if somebody says, I love Megan's podcast... All the comments underneath will say, yeah, I love Megan's podcast too. Yeah, I think it's a really great podcast. But then if somebody tweets, I really don't like Megan's podcast, then all the tweets underneath go, no, nor do I. Like, I I really know. It's an echo chamber. And, you know, an echo chamber will promote, you know, fury at a destabilizing factor. I think that's one reason. I think algorithms have got a part to play in it too. Like algorithms give us back our nastiest selves. I've really, I've become really interested in this lately. So, for instance, take porn. I'm doing a series at the moment for Audible, on, which is partly about the porn industry. And I've been looking at porn algorithms. And uh, basically, what gets to the top is the kind of nastiest stuff. Like boring old vanilla porn, which is how porn was in you know, the 80s and 90s. Like on page five of Google now. You know, it's the most vicious. So basically, algorithms feed us back our darkest 
impulses. Wow. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. You know, the examples of public shaming and redemption that you explore in your book are either American or British. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is a cultural phenomenon that's particular to our societies? Or do you think that shaming is something that humans share across culture? You know, I I don't know the answer to that question. Um, When I first moved to New York four years ago this month, I noticed like a lot of the shamings that were happening were happening in New York. And I became really interested in that. And I just got consumed with that. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I never went, you know, in some of my other books, I go to faraway places. So in them, I end up in Cameroon. Um, yeah, and other things like that. But in this book, I just stuck to Britain and America. So I never really, once in a while, I, I get an email from somebody. Just the other day, I got an email from a guy in Hong Kong who'd been publicly shamed. Something to do with writing. He's an oboist and he was publicly shamed for writing a review about oboes and apparently became like a huge deal in the oboe world and that's happening in Hong Kong. Huh. <laughs> but, uh, Interesting. Yeah. So, I, so really I, I, I am ignorant to, to your question. I don't know the answer. There's a quote in your book that stuck with me. You said, um, we know that people are complicated and have a mixture of flaws and talents and sins. So why do we pretend we don't know this? So several months out from writing the book now, do you have a theory on why we're willing to accept the complexities in ourselves, but not necessarily in people that we... I, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with this kind of, with the way that social media promotes high drama. But of course it happens, it doesn't just happen in social media, it happens in the mainstream media. I'm writing about this at the moment, actually. I went to the RNC. I'm going to write a big non-fiction piece for Amazon. It's going to go straight onto Amazon about the RNC. And by and large, the RNC was quite boring. Everybody thought there was going to be violence and there wasn't any violence. And it was really interesting to see how disappointed everybody was by by the lack of outrage and drama. I, I'll tell you, so I'm going to use this in my thing, so I, I, but I'll tell you this story. There was a um, word got around, I think, on day three that there was going to be a flag burning. This is the Republican National Convention. Yeah. yeah. I got an email saying it's going to be a flag burning at 4pm. I was like, oh, good. So, <laughs> so I went to the flag burning and there was like 200 journalists or more. Like it all descended on this flag burning. And the guy turned up with a flag and everyone like surrounded him straight away. Go, you're going to burn the flag. <laughs> and he was like, no, I'm a Marine. <laughs> he got very upset. He said, I'm not going to burn this flag. <laughs> like, I love the flag. And then the actual flag burner turned up. He was like an anarchist and like surround, like got surrounded by 200 people, 200 journalists. It was like one flag burner, 200 journalists. Um, I've never seen such a frenzy. As a result of all the pushing and shoving of the journalists, when he set fire to the flag, he actually set fire to his trousers. And like everyone's going, your trousers are on fire, stupid. And so he ended up in hospital. And then there was such a kind of, you know, everybody was like, ah, that kind of... Um, go too far to say riot but you know it got violent and then they slam closed the doors of the convention and I was like trapped between this kind of commotion with fire and a man's trousers on fire and 200 journalists trying to get a shot of the guy on fire and then the door was slammed so me and a bunch of Republican delegates and a few other journalists um, you know people from like TED Talks and stuff were all kind of trapped between the commotion and, and and the cops weren't letting us in because it was getting violent and like, you know, so, and it could have got, it nearly got dangerous. And it was all because of the 
journalists. It was nothing to do with reality. <laughs> so, and and that really interested me. It's like you know our need for drama. We seem to be living in times of heightened need for drama, both on social media and in mainstream politics and in the mainstream media. And that's the subject, I think, of this story that I'm writing for Amazon. Mm. You know, I'd love to think that Appalachian's university community could come together in a social media setting and take a stand and say, we're going to use this venue to treat each other decently. I think that's a lot of what they were setting the stage for at the event that you were at there was a, today. There was a lot of talk of compassion, curiosity, open-mindedness. And, and I wonder whether, obviously something that's been happening in the last couple of years at some college campuses is things have got a bit like social media, things have got quite combative all the stuff about safe spaces and trigger warnings. And I have very mixed feelings about, you know, those subjects. And it did make me wonder whether there was a deliberate attempt here to say, look, let's let's not turn this campus into that. Let's keep it a place of open-mindedness and friendliness and compassion. And it's much better to learn from each other through friendly dialogue than through hostility. Yeah, that is definitely part of what's happening is there, there are some, you know, some faculty and staff who are saying, you know, we can mentor people into seeing the humanity in one another, into going beyond that one dimensional dialogue, you right. know, that one dimensional way of looking at people, I guess. And so. Well, I'm very glad that they asked me to do the convocation address then because that's my thing too. Yeah. Which doesn't mean, by the way, I mean, I, I don't like it either when there's this kind of blanket, anybody who believes in safe spaces and trigger warnings are just like idiots. Like, I don't believe that. Because people get triggered. Like I've been with Monica Lewinsky lately and here's somebody who, you know, suffers from PTSD and gets triggered. People do get triggered. Like everything, I'm just a boring liberal that can see both sides. But on balance, I would say that, that a college that becomes too into safe spaces and trigger warnings and so on is is going down a, a wrong path. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is the potential to really sway social media on a, you know, with a community like this? Um, you know, I think it's just a matter of kind of personal responsibility. Like, don't, you know, just don't do it yourself. Even someone like Nico Hines, like Nico Hines is that big shaming of our, of this past week or so. You know, and he obviously did something that was really stupid. I mean, my, my guess is that it wasn't. He wasn't being deliberately evil. Not many people are deliberately evil. You know, he, he did. He made a mistake and he got sort of swept up in his own hilarity is my is my guess. But even with that, I'm thinking, you know what? Like, not everybody has to. Just because we voiceless people now have a voice doesn't mean you have to like constantly use your voice all the time. That's what I tell my nine year old. And, you know, you don't have to. You know, it's not your duty to pile in on Nico Hines or pile in on people who, who have done things not as bad as Nico Hines. You know, we don't have to do it. You know, you can use Twitter to be silly and funny or you can use Twitter to be curious and empathetic. And I just think it's it's a personal responsibility of people to just try and do that. Well, John Ronson, it's been my pleasure to speak with you today. Um, you're, t- t- hearing your public speech uh, this morning was really, really, um, it was a treat. It was a treat for our campus. And I think that you have a lot to teach our campus. And I appreciate you being here because my hope is that by recording this conversation, we will be able to keep those conversations going beyond your visit here on our campus. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed being here and I'm very glad to have been asked. And thank you for, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. 
Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.